You're listening to the Formed Book Club from Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute. Welcome back to the Formed Book Club with uh, Father Joseph Fessio, SJ in San Francisco, Vivian Duter, also in San Francisco, but separated you know, by appropriate distance, and Joseph Pierce in South Carolina. We're going to conclude today our discussion of Nikolai Diaz's book, A Time to Die, Monks on the Threshold of Eternal Life. We're going to take chapters 6, 7, and 8, perhaps the epilogue. And the first chapter we're going to take is chapter 6, The Art of a Happy Death. And this is uh, written from Fongambo Abbey uh, in France. I want to say a couple of words about Fongambo. First of all, as Nicolas Diaz reminds us, it was a foundation of Salem. And Salem was restored in the 19th century, became a center for liturgical and especially chant renewal. And 20 monks eventually went down and they founded Fontgambeau. Now, in the 1970s and 80s, there was a professor in Kansas called John Sr. And he and two other Catholic professors at a state university were part of a program which they founded called the Pearson Program. It was literature, Joseph. It was not philosophy. It was not theology. It was literature. And in a period of about 10 years, they had 800 Catholic converts from that public university, you know, state university. And it got so bad that uh, some Jewish supporters of, this, of the university shut the program down because their sons and daughters were becoming Catholic. And not only becoming Catholic, entering monasteries. And there's a very famous front page of the Kansas City Star, which has a cartoon across the front. This is the 70s and 80s, okay? So the first panel, it shows these hippie guy coming to college you know, under the gates of university there and smoking a marijuana, and he's got his guitar slung around his back and got a big beard. And then uh, the next uh, panel is uh, he's entering the Pearson program. All of a sudden, the third panel, he's shaven, you know, uh, wearing a suit and a tie and everything. And the fourth panel, he's in a monastic habit walking into the monastery because that's, that's kind of what happened. And, and so the monastery they entered was Fontgambeau. And so Fontgambeau is a monastery in France that uh, at the time had many American monks. They grew so numerous that Fontgambeau decided to make a foundation in the United States. And so in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Clear Creek, uh, there's a monastery been there for maybe a decade now that is a, you know, foundation of Foncambeau. So we here in the United States really have a connection to Foncambeau with the wonderful Clear Peak Monastery in Tulsa, Oklahoma. With that, I will turn this over to those who are much more uh, adept at, you know, more narrative type books than I am. I, I'm good for principles and things like that, but narratives kind of escape me. So... Well, my first note is page 123. Do oh. you have something before that? I have something on that page. I wonder if it's the same thing. Go ahead. I also have something on page 123. Well, okay. three out of three here. Well, I, I was taken by uh, the vision of the monastic ideal that the, um, I guess it's the abbot who's talking, um, quote, becoming a child implies a change in effort, real work. And right away, you're struck by this paradox. How does it take real work to become a child? Okay, 
This transformation, however, is the indispensable condition for entering into the family of God, into his sanctuary, into the kingdom of heaven, for, inter for entering into this game that is the monastic life. But spiritual childhood, of what does it consist? In a word, it is made of simplicity, trust, complete abandonment in the hands of God. Thus, the monastic life is a life made for children. So yeah, I, I, I would just, I mean, I, I've got the same passage. Um, I would just bookend it because I actually, I, I like the way it continues there. Yes, pick um, it up. The monastic life um, is a life made for children. The monastic life is a game, the great game of charity. Mm -hmm. In a game, it is necessary to respect the rules. It is the same in a monastic life. The monastic life is a game played with God and with those the Lord has chosen to lead to the monastery, those we call our brothers. And I love the way leading into that that you read, just the, the abatial motto, uh, modo geniti infantes, like newborn infants. And again, the, the paradox here, you know, that in order to become a good, solid responsible monk you have to become like a little child it's, it's marvelous well then since you added on to what Vivian quoted I will add on one sentence to what you quoted I love that last sentence truly monastic life is a conspiracy of charity wasn't that a great great expression it is yes. but my but my question on 123 went before that it's the last two lines <sighs> of this poem will dream of you still when the final blasphemy like an immense sword skewers God. Uh, literary people there, could you explain that to me? Well, my understanding of that poem, and I only read it in haste, I must confess, and um, there's something about it which I'm a little bit uncomfortable with because it, it seems to imply the, the final victory of secularism, but we'll sort of, as secularism finally wins, we'll curse it as we're, as we're being martyred. Uh, but not perhaps not going to God, because ultimately the world, with the final blasphemy, skewers God. Now, of course, you could say that skewers God is an image of the crucifixion, and that's something which continues and continues and continues. And, of course, at the end times, when, it, when things do finally come to an end, there will be goats and sheep, and we can be fairly sure that most politicians will still be goats, um, and they will probably have the power. So in that sense, it's not wrong. It's just that reading overall, I thought is, you know, that the world is too much and too powerful, but the monks uh, and the Christians are sort of like like Custer's last stand. You know, it's it's worth dying for this noble cause, but it's not necessarily a suggestion of resurrection here, which I always find a little bit um, disconcerting in a, a, a poem that purports to be Christian. Vivian, did you have any uh, thoughts on this uh, last part of the poem? Well... Um, I don't know this poet. Had you heard of him before, Joseph, this Emil Verheron? No. no. And I really, what I should have done is Googled him and found out more about him. But I got the impression that it was sort of an ode to the unvanquished monks <clears throat> who even when, you know, we are anticipating in apocalyptic literature this sort of final battle. And uh, I think, Joseph, that's very profound. You seeing a uh, link to the crucifixion here with this line, an immense sword skewers God. 
the fact that it leaves the triumph unspoken is not necessarily to me a defect. Um, it kind of uh, sets something up to ask the question, well, what happens after that? I mean, sometimes art uh, is better if it only takes you so far. I agree. And I agree, but there should at least be hints and chinks in the uh, in the in the, in the armor. And just to, as a matter, of, it, it's not unvanquished monks in the text. It is vanquished monks. Oh, monks vanquished, unbowed, silenced. Yes. Well, we'll leave that. Well, to the... oh, giants who tower above the din of the world. I I see this as monks who are winning a victory. I I'm not sure. You know, remember this is translated. Also, and that's the other thing, I find reading poems that have been translated into English, unless they're accompanied by things that I read to help me, you know, and I didn't spend a lot of time on it. I'm just saying, if you want to read it more closely, I think there's a lot there. Well, but I, think I, also, I also read it in haste, so not, I'm not pontificating the perspective of uh, any uh, in-depth delving. Well, from now on, I expect you to read all literary allusions or texts in, not in haste, but in, in uh, leisure. And Vivian, if there's a problem with the translation, would you please talk to your daughter who translated this book? Well, she probably did not translate this poem. As you can see from the footnote, she took the translation oh, from see. this Will Stone. Usually translators, when they're dealing with literary quotes and things, they try to find already authorized all English right. translations. So... But in any case, um, this line at the bottom of 123, uh, paraphrasing Ignatius of Antioch, the abbot explained to the author on several occasions that it was better to die well than to reign over the ends of the earth. Yes. Okay, so I think that this death that the monks are undergoing in the monastery, which is a real death, as we talked about last time, uh, the daily deaths to ego and so on, they look as though they're uh, dead to the world because they are dead to the world, but they're alive to something else. And so uh, better that than to look like you're winning and a conqueror and standing on top of the world and really be dead. So I think that's all that I want to say about that. All right. That's good. <laughs> well, but you remind me of this, that, we're getting towards the end of this book now. And what we've seen is that, well, monasteries are places where people come to prepare for death and eternal mm -hmm. life. Uh, they have all the different variations of response to disease and to sickness and to the coming of death that we find in ourselves and in the world. And that's one thing for me that makes this book such a, uh, you know, inspiring book is it, it's not just about the way these very special people approach death, but how they integrate their approach to death in their lives with all their defects and failings and different personalities and so on. It's, it's quite illuminating. It is. And there's also a difference from monastery to monastery. While there are things they have in common, we've seen in previous chapters some pretty agonizing deaths that nevertheless were beautiful and uh, uh, God winning the soul in the end. Um, nevertheless, we've seen a lot of pain and suffering uh, in this book. And now this art of the happy death 
it's almost as if, and some of the later chapters too, it's almost as if that in some places uh, we don't see quite the uh, drama and trauma when death approaches that we saw in some of these. And that's a great mystery to me that, so this particular monastery, they have this statue of Our Lady of a Happy Death that seems to be some sort of, you know, protectress or patroness of this particular monastery. Yes. And that there's some charism in death that they have that we uh, didn't see in some of these other ones. I think, I think yeah, we, we look at these different monasteries with the, the, the different way that we see Nicolas de Ar, um reflecting the deaths from the monks. And I think there are two ways, two things happening. One's objective and one's subjective. One, I think, is the charism of the, of the various different orders and how they contemplate and meditate upon death, and, and that could actually influence the way they approach death. But also, I think, you know, that the way that the abbot and the other spokesman approach Nicolas Diar is going to vary. You know, they, whether they just want to be absolutely candid uh. or whether they're <laughs> going to keep it ethereal and spiritual, right? Uh, and and if, they, if they make that, that's going to make a big difference to the way that, that Nicolas Diar can write about it. Good, very good point. Anything else on this chapter, The Art of a Happy Death? Well, if we, if we have time, actually, I, I wouldn't mind just reading, because I think it's absolutely beautiful, one of the most beautiful prayers I've ever read, the, the prayer at the bottom of page 127, carrying over to 128 by uh, uh, Pope St. Pius X, is Prayer for the Dying. May I read that? Sure. Oh, Jesus, adoring your last breath, I beg you to receive mine not knowing at this time whether I will have command of my senses when I leave this world. I offer you even now my last agony and all the sufferings of my death. From today on, I willingly and freely accept from your hand whatever kind of death will please you with all its sufferings, its pains and fears. You are my father and my savior. I place my soul in your hands. I desire that my last moment be united with that of your death and that the last beat of my heart be an act of pure love for you. Amen. That is beautiful. No mm -hmm. question about it. I want to be shot by a jealous husband. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> On your way out of confession. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Father, I do have something on this chapter as well. Page 135, if I may. Oh, sure. This is obviously, this is the Luddite in me coming out here. Some of these monks have good ideas. So page 135, four lines down. The complexity of the economy and data processing has changed everything. It makes Dom Pato wonder if man still has time to die. <laughs> yeah. The acceleration of technological life overwhelms until the final moments. God must force us to take this, this time. He says that's enough when modern man would readily answer, I don't have time. <laughs> we would be quite ready to miss the high point of this life. Man has become a slave. In the same way, he no longer has time for himself and for God. The lack is cruel. He does not have time to die because, it, because he does not have time to live. For his part, the monk agrees to lose all his time, lose all his time for God. Monastic life is happy. Monastic death is also. 
Yes. I don't want to die in the middle of a text message. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's uh, interesting. There is a spiritual, an American spiritual, which were written, as you know, by the black slaves uh, on plantations in the South. And there's one that's called Ain't Got Time to Die. And... Uh, and here's a slave saying he ain't got time to die as he's digging in the fields, you know. But the imagery moves from this laboring as a slave to working in the vineyard of the Lord. And I'm using all of my time to praise my Jesus. And this is one of the refrains, you know. So here is someone taking the condition of slavery and his time has literally been robbed from him. And yet, because he's giving it to God, he's transforming the situation. And now this ain't got time to die takes on a different hue. I couldn't help but think of this song as I was reading this. Now, I agree with you, but I think the problem is a little bit different. I think the problem with the modern world is distraction is that we willingly choose not to give our time to God because we're distracted by lesser things. Whereas the slave in the song, is for, he has lost his time. It's been stolen from him. He's a slave. But even though he's slaving for someone else, he still has his mind and his heart, and he can meditate and pray. He's actually closer to the monks than the person texting. He's actually freer. He is freer uh than people who think they're free and are actually in bondage to all of these pernicious bad habits and well that's right just this last weekend at the ignatius presser treehouse where i have a little vineyard uh to which i'm not enslaved but i am kind of my life is determined partly because you have to take care of vines week after week you can't let them go uh and so I was spraying the vines, uh, and each row has about 30, 30 vines in it. So I was, I was thinking, about what, what was our Lord doing, or what was Mary doing when they were doing these menial tasks? And so I would, I'd make each row a deck of the rosary. I, I wouldn't say Hail Mary because that kind of distracted me, but I, I would be saying Hail Mary. I mean, I might be meditating on a mystery as I went down one side of the row and back up the other side. Uh, and I thought, well, in some way, you know, our Lord and Our Lady must have been able to uh, give their hearts and their minds to God when they were doing not exactly mindless activities, but kind of repetitious activities where it doesn't require thinking itself. Whereas if we become a slave to the telephone or the television or the smartphone, that takes your mental attention. Uh, you really can't pray while you're doing that. So that's, I think, part of my Luddite uh, experience, too. Right. Good. Well, that was almost well, I have, the last... I, I actually must confess I have nothing highlighted in the penultimate chapter, so that's over to you two if you have anything in that okay, chapter. Okay, that's chapter 7, How to Say Goodbye, Mondai Abbey. I didn't mark anything there either, although I enjoyed the chapter while I was reading it. Vivian, you... I did. Yes, I did. I marked um, on page 149 when um, they drink the champagne. Oh, I did mark that too, yes. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, wait, so what's happening here? They arrive at the hospital. The dying man was in a bad way, but clear-headed. 
And turning to the abbot with his tone of voice a little high, he said, oh, my father, you have come. It is too much of an honor. And the abbot responded, no, it is not too much of an honor. You are going to die. I come to give you extreme unction. After a moment of silence, Father Vincent, this is the man dying. Ah, yes, it is necessary. <laughs> Reassured by his reaction, the father abbot took out the good bottle, this is champagne, from his satchel. But afterward, we're going to celebrate. Father Vincent let out a sigh. Ah, you thought of it. The three canons celebrated with the champagne. Father Vincent died in peace two days later at the abbey. That's beautiful. It is, yeah. That is beautiful, yeah. We're going to select something from that chapter. That was the perfect selection. Well done, Vivian. That was. Well, you know, a quote that's come up several times throughout the book is that we die the way we live. And so um, I think this being able to celebrate at a moment like this with a bottle of good champagne uh, does show you that, you know, monks know how to live. It, it, it's, they might have austerity and make lots of sacrifices, but, you know, they live in beautiful places. I bet the wine they drink is wonderful. I bet the bread they bake is delicious. I bet the... The things they use at worship are also beautiful. They're, we sometimes think that a life of uh, serious penance means some kind of crudity or, or living at some, you know, lower level. In fact, these men live at a higher level. And uh, I thought that was just great, the good bottle of champagne. Also, uh, again, at our retreat house, uh, I have a little wheat field, which I grow wheat on so I can make hosts, but there's some left over. And I'm not a cook at all, but I, I can make a simple kind of bread, which is just flour, you know, basically, and water and, and yeast. But from time to time, I'll go out on our deck. We have this beautiful image of the, of the, of the hills in the background and the vineyards in the foreground. And I'll have a piece of fresh baked coarse bread a glass of Chardonnay from my vines and a fresh apple from our orchard right over to the right there. And I, you know, I'll take that already meal at any restaurant. I mean, I don't care who cooks it. It, it. If you're sitting there, especially when I'm making a retreat by myself and you're actually thinking about the taste of the food, you know, yes. and then it came from here. It's a wonderful experience. Now, maybe if I did that day after day, I would get tired of it. But boy, from time to time, just to rejoice in God's creation and the gift he's given us to take his creation and, and raise it up in a sense by growing things and cooking things. It, it's quite a beautiful experience. Father, I would say one thing uh, uh, that I agree with you. Uh, my favorite meal, if you ask me what my favorite meal was, above all else, would be a glass of very good red wine and good French bread. No butter on it, nothing, just the bread and the wine I'm in my mouth at the same time. Bliss. Yes. Uh, how should I say this? Uh, oh. Oh, I forget. What's the Belloc poem? Uh, uh, he uh, heroic uh, Ode in Praise of Wine? Yes. Uh, I, I know the last two lines, but... Uh, Please. I, that's better than me. Well, I find it so wherever I go, but I go... Uh, wherever there's ah, 
wherever the Catholic sun does shine, shine, there's always laughter and good red, and wine. Good red wine. I find it Catholic. so wherever I go, Benedictamus Domino. There it is. Got it. So let's go on to chapter 8, the death of the recluses, the Grand Chartreuse Monastery near Grenoble in France. Uh, I will say this word about this because I've been to this one also. Uh, it's really set in a, in a spectacularly beautiful setting, you know, in, in the, the mountains just to the east of Grenoble. Uh, and I think this is a great chapter in the book with because we move into kind of the, the levity of death or taking death lightly, so to speak. Uh, so I've got a couple of quotes on 164, 166, and 168. Does anybody have anything before that? I would like to, before that, add that this comment I just made about beauty and the beauty of this life, I found the language of the author in his descriptions of things almost on a more beautiful plane. The way he describes the prayer in the chapel with only the tabernacle light burning and these beautiful voices uh, and the way he describes the surroundings and the building and so on. And by the way, for the sake of uh, anyone listening out there, this was the monastery that was visited in that German film, Into the Great oh, Silence, yes. right. that won all kinds of awards that was seen worldwide to everyone's surprise because it's completely silent except for the sounds of monastic life. But it really is a feast of beauty to watch it. And I thought the author here captured that atmosphere. Uh, I've never been there, but seeing the movie, I thought whatever's in my imagination of what this place must be like, I thought this chapter was capturing something of that. Yeah, he's a, he's a journalist. Yes. Father, I'm, Go I'm going to defer to you on page 165. I just want to just mention very briefly, on page 163, 164, I, I highlighted some passages. I just... In the cemetery, there are no names on the graves. And I must confess that I fell in love on a deeper level with Carthusian spirituality on reading this chapter, which is my favorite chapter in the whole book. Uh, it really does unite, as in a marriage, austerity and beauty. Yes. Um, and, you know, I'm someone that likes laughter and good red wine. And, uh, you know, I'm a rambunctious Chester Bellocchian. And I don't really see myself being a Carthusian monastery. Um, but I can really see the beauty of it, having read this chapter. So, yes. yeah. And then this. I, also, by the way, sorry, oh, oh, keep in touch here. The abbot, I think it's the abbot. The Carthusian monastery makes saints; it does not publish them. Well, that was my I, I that was that. my quote. Oh, was that 164? You said 165. I, I said 164, 66, and 68. You can read. I beg that's you, all right. Yeah, but that but that fits in with what you said about the graves not having the names on the crosses. You know, yes. you're just a monk, and they write books. It'll be from a Carthusian monk. But I'll go below that there on page 164. In the middle of the 17th century. In the cemetery of the old Carthusian monastery in Paris, at the site of the current Luxembourg Garden, miracles were multiplying on the grave of a lay brother who had died in the order of sanctity. Dom Innocent, that's a nice name, a Dom Innocent, says the prior came to the place to address the deceased. In the name of the holy, holy obedience, I forbid you to perform miracles. The extraordinary phenomena ceased immediately. 
<laughs> that was extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. That was extraordinary. And then uh, I was going to mention page 166. Uh, this just got a poetic footnote here. Uh, he quotes Charles Péguy, who was one of the great, great French poets of the 20th century. Uh, and you'll notice in this poem, there's a lot of ellipses in there. Uh, you're not missing anything, because one of the characteristics of Péguy was he repeated the same thing about 11 times, changing it slightly. Somebody's just repeating it, so you can really quote Péguy uh, with a lot of ellipses. But I recommend him as a poet, uh, his... Uh, his beautiful poem on Our Lady uh, of uh, Notre Dame, uh, of the, Our Lady of the Beauce, B-E-A-U-C, which is where he grew up, and uh, the cathedral at uh, Chartres is, is phenomenal. Everything, I mean, everything he wrote is pretty good. And this, Father, this, um, I, I was unaware of this poem, and uh, I, I think it's, it's profound. In fact, it's one of the... Uh, best meditation on hope I've ever read. Um, I wrote an essay once for a, a book on hope, you know, a, a collection of essays by people on hope. And uh, I wish I knew this at the time because I'd, I'd have quoted it with the most profound part of my essay would be Shoal Peggy and not me, but I've only just discovered it now. It's beautiful. It really, there's an awful lot to, uh, to meditate upon there. You could spend, you could spend uh, an hour just working through this poem, you know? Yes. Well, Dreadfully. It's interesting that we started this discussion with spiritual childhood, and in this poem, hope is a child. Yes. And uh, yes, it's a beautiful image of it looking as though hope is being taken along by her two sisters, Faith and Charity, but that in fact, she is the one who moves the other two. There's a lot to contemplate with that one line. Yes. In reality, it is she, meaning hope, moving the other two. What does that mean to say that hope is really what's moving faith and charity? Um, yes, I, I'm glad that it's here. I hope it. I hope it draws people to want to look up this poem and read the whole thing because it really. Is I, I, I love. I love the fact it's, it is. A, it is a mystical poem, you know, like Saint John of the Cross, and yet it's rooted in in ratio. It's actually it's rooted in reason because you know. The reason that faith doesn't surprise him is because, you know, as, as, as God says here, you know, there's so much splendor in creation. The, the, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Only an idiot would not believe in God when you can look at the trees, right? So in other words, that faith is something which reason leads us to. Um, and, and again, charity, you know, that we, we're, such, we're so, such miserable creatures. We need love, right? It's not a question of, you know, we can do without it. We can't do without it. But hope, on the other hand, you know, is, is a, a slightly more difficult thing to, to get, get our hands on. So next week we'll begin reading and discussing Robert Riley's recent book, America on Trial, A Defense of the Founding. And it couldn't come at a more opportune time because we have a lot of critics uh, at this very moment who are looking back to our founding and saying the whole thing was a mistake. It wasn't 1776, it was 1619, it was founded on racism and slavery. Uh, and the question can come up, well, are the problems we have in society today the result of a fault in the founding or of a wrong founding or the result of departing from the founding? Bob Riley, I think, masterfully takes the position that our founding was, was very deeply rooted in Catholic principles 
and even in ancient Greece and Rome, the best of ancient Greece and Rome. So we're going to begin studying this book and reading this book uh, starting next week. We'll be taking the, the, you know, the introductory material plus chapter one. That's about the first 65 pages. And it's something I think is going to be uh, very worthwhile in itself, but especially worthwhile at this time in our country. I want to conclude it with, with a word about white privilege. It may be that Vivian and Joseph, you and I, because we're white, we have white privilege. But I would say what we really have is Catholic privilege. I think about, for example, Justice uh, Thomas, uh, who is black. Uh, but his grandparents, who raised him, were Catholic. And so Justice Clarence Thomas went to a Catholic school run by Catholic nuns with both black and white children in that school. Then he went to a Catholic college. At the time, it was Catholic. Then we Holy Cross uh, in Worcester, Massachusetts. And so why was it that, that uh, Clarence Thomas could rise from the poverty and the slavery uh, effectively, of Savannah, Georgia, and become a Supreme Court justice, not because he was white, not because he was black, because he had a Catholic education that rooted him in the truths and gave him the, the ability to develop his talents. Here's another example, our good friend, Carl Robert Seurat. He was born in a little tiny village. Who knows where Guinea, Africa is? Put that on a map. And what the capital is, Conakry. He wasn't born there. He was born in a little village, barefoot, his parents converted to the faith, Irish Holy Ghost brothers at a school, they went to school. And so this, this little black boy from a rural area in almost unknown parts of Africa rises to the highest level in education and in the Catholic Church. Why? Because the Catholic Church, which has helped to form Western civilization, is what gives us all the cultural goods that we have, and therefore the, the answer to racism is really the fullness of the truth in the Catholic Church. They can see all men and all women as their brothers and sisters and provide them with an opportunity. To me, that's the answer, not white privilege, it's Catholic privilege. See you all next week. God bless you all. To receive email updates, study questions, and free access to our online forum, just visit formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Thanks for joining us.